The Athletic. Spurs went out and bought the best player in the championship last season in Jed Spence, a player who's been absolutely coveted by other teams in the form of Bissouma, and Brazil set the forward, and none of them have got anywhere near playing for the team. Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to The View from the Lane, the Tottenham Hotspur podcast from The Athletic. I'm your host, Danny Kelly. Alongside me today is The Athletic's James Moore and Jack Pitt-Brook. On today's episode, we'll dissect the narrow Valentine's Day defeat in Milan. I suppose it's kept uh, Spurs alive in the last 16 of the Champions League. And we'll get our European hats on as we check on some of the club's low knees and their progress. I want Jack and James, but hello both, I want you just to do me a favour... So as we don't lead the witnesses, I think it's a complicated game to unpick and a complicated result to unpick. Write down a couple of key words right now so that when I do the intro, when we hear from Tim Spears, who was there for The Athletic, we don't kind of get led by the opening remarks of people. But we give our own assessments of the game. Let's hear from our roving reporter, Tim Spears, who was at the San Siro. View from the laners, ciao. Ciao, 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 ciao. Quite an underwhelming evening, I'd say. I'm here in the bowels of the San Siro as we wait for Antonio Conte to come in and tell us what he all thought. No doubt he'll say it was a great performance. I mean, it was probably a little bit better than I was expecting at the start of the night, certainly after seven minutes in terms of a performance and a result. It was just frustrating, really, that Milan were so average. And, you know... We know they've not been in great form in terms of their league results recently, um, but they couldn't lift themselves to offer a really good performance, but neither could Spurs, to be honest. I thought it was a poor game. It didn't play out like a high-quality last 16 Champions League tie and certainly didn't live up to either the occasion or the incredible cathedral that Spurs played this match out in. The, the noise was quite something, I've got to say. It was an absolutely packed San Siro, fantastic atmosphere. Spurs fans gave as good as they could get uh, when I could hear them up from up in the gods in the third tier. But yeah, they'll have been a little bit disappointed, I think, from by what they saw. Spurs' main route to goal was set pieces. Some of the deliveries were, were pretty underwhelming as well. That felt like their best chance of grabbing a goal on the night. Because from open play, there was just very, very little to speak of. And... I thought it was interesting how Saar and Skip uh, certainly exceeded my expectations and played really well. Fraser Force didn't put a foot wrong. And yet you look at the senior players like Romero, like Kulisevsky, like Son, who were just really underwhelming in one way or another. Romero, nine bookings in his last ten for club and country. Uh, was one of the worst, just a ridiculous challenge. He was at fault for the goal and he was beaten a couple of times. And then, yeah, Kulisevsky and Son, real lack of creativity, real lack of spark. Richarlis has got to start the next game. So, yeah, we'll see. I think Spurs have got certainly got enough to overturn this in the second leg. But who knows what Spurs will turn up on that night. We'll wait to see how the next few weeks pan out and hopefully they don't lose any more players before that point as well. So, yeah. Right. Ciao, ciao, ciao. That's me checking out from the San Siro. A very romantic Valentine's Day spent eating paninis and watching Spurs lose 1-0 to Milan. See you soon, guys. Yeah, Tim Spears there was watching the game. Let me ask you first, James, I'll allow you to make an opening statement here, if you like, like in a court of law. What did you make of the performance and the result? What Does it constitute a good, bad or indifferent result? And what did you make of the performance? I mean, if you're asking me for the word I've written down, the word I've written down is deceptive. Because in the immediate aftermath of that game, I was fairly satisfied. 
I guess for the reasons that we outlined on Monday, like losing that game by one goal in the circumstances doesn't really feel like a, a disaster, you know, with the context of a second leg to come. But having slept on it, now I'm actually <laughs> actually quite annoyed at the performance. So I guess it is a classic example of having to separate result and performance. A result, I don't think, is too damaging. You know, Spurs just need to win the game at home to, at worst, go to extra time with home advantage in the second leg. But the performance, you know, conceded a quite stupid goal for my money, not really created a whole lot, having trailed for, what, 83 minutes. Also not really put themselves at risk too often. And one or two counter-attacks would have looked a bit exposed by Romero's act of stupidity, which I'm sure we'll come on to. So it wasn't dreadful, but it was uninspiring, wasn't it, really? Well, that, that thank you. Those are your early thoughts. We'll gather them all up. Um, Jack, what did you make of the performance and the result? Which I don't care which order you do them in. Initially, I think I probably went on a similar journey to James in that I thought, at the time, I thought the performance was better than expected. The midfield was better than expected. They didn't get completely overrun. And I think maybe this is just because they were so awful against Le- at Leicester on Saturday that you really expected the worst going into this game. And it's only really been in hindsight that I thought they should have won. Like, they're, they're obviously better than Milan. And, may, and maybe that wasn't a full-strength Milan, and maybe a full-strength Milan would have been a different prospect. But Spurs lost the game that they should have won against a team they should have beaten. They conceded a stupid goal, and um, they didn't really look, look like scoring at all from open plays. So I think the result is fine, to be honest. I think they, I would probably make them really very marginal favourites to go through, I think. And there was a lot about the performance that I liked particularly Skip and Saar, who I thought were fantastic, given their, you know, I think it was in both cases their first Champions League start. But I think like James, it does leave you with a slightly disappointing taste when you realise that it kind of shows you how how far the the bar got lowered by what happened at Leicester. The expectations are suddenly changed to such an extent that it, you know, a pretty average performance makes people get, start wondering if this is actually really good. Thank you both for that, because I, 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 I haven't been on a journey, but I was aware of while I was watching the game. Admittedly, I wasn't in the stadium where you can get ca- carried away with the atmosphere. I thought, a bit like yourselves, I thought the performance was weedy. You can pick out individuals, and I would I would do that. The problem is, with an Italian team, and this is some a bias from the over the past, but it's also true now, because they will be strong technical players. That's what they do. If you go one down, it's very easy to be duped into thinking you're doing very well for the rest of the game. And often you're doing as well as they allow you to do. They made no attempt to get a second, except occasionally on the breakthrough, Leao and Teo Hernandez. And they were perfectly content to let Spurs pass the ball about in front of them. You know, we've seen that a million times. And the fact that Spurs, and I'll get onto this, Spurs didn't make a really proper chance in the, in the whole of the game. I'm trying to think of one where you, maybe there was a possibility of a pullback I can't remember who got to the to the goal. Was it Ben Davis? And it, it didn't quite come off. Uh, again, I thought the lack of pattern, this this famous pattern, and the lack of dynamism. I can't remember a moment. Help me here, and I'm serious. Where Spurs looked like they were moving the ball at pace and were threatening the opposition, not just with an intricate passing movement, but just by physically getting past them somehow. I thought it was. Back to the old days pre-Manchester City. Manchester City now looks like an utter blip. And I want them to play good football. I want them to look like they're going to attack the opposition. And I know it's harder. It's really very much harder to do that in the last 16 of the Champions League than in some places. But if you don't have intent, you can't have outcome. So the result's okay. I thought the performance as a whole against a Milan team that 
They're bang average at this level. Let's not kid ourselves. They're bang average. Was was disappointing. What I would say on that is that the it is very rare that a champions you know you, that you'll go to a game like this and play expansive football an away first leg in the Champions League knockout stage against another big team is the kind of game which is so often decided by a set piece for example that's why I thought it was so frustrating that Spurs I thought their Spurs set pieces were really poor yesterday having been pretty good all season and if they'd scored one of those free kicks you know they had all those good uh, attacking position free kicks especially in the first half then I think the game you know people might have called it a masterclass they might have looked at it in a completely different way because these games depend on fine margins so much and when your set piece delivery is as bad as it was last night then all of a sudden no I don't think the delivery or particularly in the first half I don't think the delivery was bad oh no fair enough I think the execution of the the headers basically was bad yeah yeah that's right yeah yeah and I guess you know people were Making a lot of the two very the two late headed chances that Milan had, and you know, let's not kid ourselves. Either either one or both could have gone in, but so could you know Eric Dyer also missed from three yards with his head, and it, the, the ball was bouncing off his head, and all kinds of people used to describe this as having a, a sort of um, derrily head, didn't they? Where it's all angles, or a fifty pence piece head, where it's all angles and the ball can go anywhere. Derrily would be a terrible. If you had a head made of derrily, you wouldn't be able to get any force on the ball at all. If you were attacking, imagine if you were attacking the ball from a set piece from a corner, and you tried to head the ball, but your head was made of dairy lee. Yeah, it would. Uh, it's a cushioned header. Yeah, it would only a cushioned header. Not only have you got no control over the angles, but you've also it's also very soft. What would be a preferred cheese for heading the ball with then? Pecorino. Oh yeah, okay. it's uh, hard. Yeah, no, very good, very powerful. Doof boof, as people used to say, with a with a decent. Also header. from Conte's part of the world, right? From Puglia or is it Calabria? I don't know. Where's dairy lee from? Which part the, the Lee Valley in London, is really Pecorino is actually from Sardinia, not from mainland Italy. So it's more of a Gianfranco Zola than Antonio Conte. Derry Lee is made in Belgium, by the way. Is that right? Because because it's so much part of my childhood, I assumed it was ma- it was made in the River Lee. Because it, <laughs> the idea of anything coming from far away, other than the shamrock that used to get posted to London from Ireland, um, it, 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 it beats me. Let me ask you about before the game started then. Can we take the lineup that started um, in Milan as proof positive, Jack, that Antonio Conte and his assistants will now never, under any circumstances, um, in any situation, regardless of the personnel available to him, he will never change this system from 3-4-3. That that's, looks like final proof to me. This is what I said on Monday's show, Danny. I said he will never change the system. And I know lots of people would like him to, but I really don't think he will. I, I don't know what set of circumstances would force him to abandon 3-4-3. I'm not sure if those circumstances even exist. So, yeah, I think you know it's 3-4-3 all the way to the end, I think, from here. Yes, so that means that nobody sits in a meeting and goes... So that means that we're ending up away from home in Milan in the Champions League with a midfield, a person who we know can't really cross the ball in the form of Emerson Royal, two people virtually making their debut in this competition, and Ivan Perisic, whose form is a bit sketchy and he's going to be very tired. That's 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 our that's our idea of how to attack the opposition, is it? Because for Conte, it's all about regularity. Like Conte's whole method is all about regularity, predictability, drilling the players so they know exactly what's expected of them. And he, I'm sure he thinks that you can't go around giving players different formations to different games because it will it will kind of screw with all the planning you've done and all the, all the, the game plans you've had to internalise. Exactly, exactly. Think of the automations. Yeah, and th- th- 
Think of the outcome of watching a team not producing any chances when they've got some pretty brilliant forward players, if they're in form, of course. What about the individuals in the game? We were very, very critical of a lot of individuals uh, after defeating Leicester, and quite rightly so, uh, James. But I, th- I thought, I see people giving Kane grief. I thought he was, maybe it's because of my ongoing love affair, and you know, it was Valentine's Day, he sent me a card, I was so pleased. But I thought... I thought he tried very, very hard, got involved in a tremendous physical battle with Kier. But I, I suppose, away from him, the, the, the standout individuals, if we're going to be positive about it, were the two young midfielders. Young. They're not young. They should, they should. If you're going to be a star at football, you're probably there at 21, although that is changing, isn't it? I thought they were pretty good, actually. Yeah, I, I was surprised to see Kane getting criticism as well. I thought it was like a really mature centre-forwards performance in a team that had very little by way of creativity, as we mentioned. You know, he held the ball up. He won all those set pieces that Spurs could or should have scored from in the first half. You know, he didn't get a lot of service, didn't get the balls played into him in good position to, to create chances for himself. I think I can remember one moment in the second half where he kind of burst into the box with the ball at his feet. And I don't think he got the shot away in the end. But yeah, I, 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 was, yeah, so I was surprised by that. I don't think... The lack of creativity and the lack of chances in the game was down to Kane. But yeah, you're right. Those two in midfield were really good. Skip, I think, looked back at the kind of level we had seen from him kind of in the first half of last season when he was a regular under Conte before Bentenko signed. He doesn't look like someone who's going to be able to move that well with the ball. His movement when when he takes the ball in, when he brings the ball into his feet, he's so fluid in the way he can turn. And I'm not, I'm not, you know, I feel like I compare every midfielder that plays for Spurs to Moussa Dembele yes. now, but <laughs> he is, he does kind of have a similar sort of slippery quality when he first brings the ball in, un, under control. When, it, when I went under pressure from an opponent, he's quite good at kind of wriggling away from the first player. I mean, Saar, I thought, was absolutely brilliant. I thought a- everything he did, more or less, was, was really, of a really, really high standard. It was an incredibly composed and mature performance from a player who... Was he twenty? And he's played fifty games in France and in the World Cup and whatever. So it shouldn't, you know, and maybe we shouldn't be that surprised. But yeah, I thought he was brilliant, and that, you know, it did feel like it probably wasn't quite Harry Winks against Real Madrid. Um, I, I, and given the way that all unfolded in the end, maybe that's not a bad thing. But I, I, it did strike me as a as a kind of coming of age performance that we might be talking about for a while. Yeah, the, the the mighty Harry Winks, and of course, it was also the first evening in a long time that I thought about Jack's uh, devotion to both Tanga and Domble and uh, Gio Lo Celso and thought, man, we could do with those footballers in and around here. We'll talk about that a little bit later. What did you make of the midfielder, Jack? Yeah, really good. I was pretty worried going into the game uh, about those two because obviously I think in both cases it was their first Champions League start. They've, none of them have played a lot of football this year. It's clear where they stand in the hierarchy at Tottenham. And yeah, I thought, yeah, I think, like James said, I thought Skip was more of a kind of picking up from where he left off performance. Obviously, he, lost, he missed basically all of 2022 with injury. You know, he got injured, what, uh, I think his last, he, he played a game in January, then he didn't play again, we didn't see him again until October. Whereas this looked like the kind of Skip that we've seen before. Like, he's so, he's very energetic, he's so clever. He always, his ability to kind of, to to nick the ball, to intercept, to make interceptions, uh, or, you know, popping up in the right places was good but I thought but we've kind of seen all that before whereas Saar is a lot more of an unknown quantity I thought and he was I loved watching him play he was so he was just he was kind of in complete control of everything he was doing he was very calm on the ball he's obviously got a very good he's got a very good touch he was never he never looked particularly ruffled or hassled Uh, he passed the ball well and uh, I'm sure there's a lot more to come in terms of you know him 
getting forward, shooting, which you know, shooting from distance is one of his big strengths in Mets. And so, I, yeah, I, I really enjoyed watching him play. And there was a lot more kind of surprise factor, I thought, about Sars' performance compared to Skip, who you know who played as well as we know that he can play. Yeah, and I guess I guess Sars also, um, and both of them, to be fair, ticked a box that I was a bit fearful about in, with Benton Kerr's injury. Benton Kerr, don't forget, covers a ton of ground. Um, the stats show that he's often the Spurs' most running player. And Saar was going in the 96th minute, um, at least on the surface, was running as well as he had done when the game kicked off. I thought it was, that was a very impressive performance as well. Replicating in the, in the hurly-burly of the Premier League, we'll, ha- we'll have to see what happens. But of course, mostly one of them will be, I presume, partnering Hoiberg in, in the game's uh, to come and we'll see which which way he goes. Look, I think there's a question that it's almost become the elephant in the room and I don't want us to be afraid to ask hard questions and maybe people say about blinking time. I'm going to use the word tolerate here. How much longer can Spurs and the management and we the fans tolerate Son's form given that we now have a possibility, we have players who might replace him and probably if he wasn't already so much in credit with with his performances over the past years, if Son, let's say we'd bought Son um, in the summer and he'd had only six months to adjust, he'd be out of this team now, wouldn't he? How much longer can this go on, do you think, J- James? I mean, it, I think the fans can already tolerate the idea of him being dropped. I'm not, I'm not seeing anyone sort of suggest he should be persisted with beyond the sort of seven, eight months he's had now in the team this season. And aside from anything else, there are now two players who could play off the left instead of him in Richarlison and Dan Juma. So it's not even like there are, there aren't options or you're playing someone out of position or you're going to have to shift things around. There were two players who were sat on the bench last night and who have been sat on the bench in the last few games who could play who could play in that position. I, I, I do kind of understand persisting with Son and that has been a sort of slight uplift in his performances in the last couple of games. I mean, I thought he was pretty good against Man City. I mean, you know, who, who was good against Leicester? Nobody. I mean, you know, you can't necessarily, you know, use that as a stick to beat him with. But last night, I mean, he was better than Kulazewski last night, for example. Obviously, the issue there is that you end up with Richarlison going on on 70 minutes over on the right again, which is just like, uh, uh, not especially constructive, given that's his, what, third best position, maybe even fourth. So, I mean, to me, it feels obvious that Richarlison deserves to start a few games now and you know given we've got a relatively tight turnaround I know it could be tighter but before Sunday's game it just seems like the perfect opportunity just to give Richarlison a start and let him you know let him show what he can do he, he looked pretty you know uh, he looked pretty busy on uh, 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 in the game last night for Richarlison in those sort of 20 minutes he, he made things happen he teed up that chance for Saar that he screwed wide obviously got that shot away from that little knockback himself he looked like you know Content to kind of take players on and take a few risks and make things happen. That's that's not what Son has been doing. Well, if I, if you, I mean, I put it down in my mind to a very simple equation. Um, and you know, Richardson can be a bit um, harem scarum. I don't mind that bit of chaos. Um, but the difference is at the present moment is that in again the confusion of a game, Son looks like he's going to lose the ball all the time. And Richarlison looks like he's going to win it. It's kind of crazy that Richarlison has not played more often in Son's position. I think Richarlison has started twice in Son's position all season. That was uh, Leicester at home when Son was dropped and Leeds at home just before the World Cup when, of course, Son was injured. And that's that just strikes me as bizarre because Richarlison played out on the left, driving in, 
so much for Watford and for Everton. I, th- I mean, I think he, he would say his best position is through the middle. I think in the Spurs system, I th- where Kane is always going to play, I think he would do Son's job pretty well out on the left. And it's just, it really, I think it just really shows up how hierarchical Tottenham is or how hierarchical, sorry, Conte's Tottenham is. Like, there's no, there's no real sense of meritocracy. It's just, you know, the senior players play every week. Also, look, if you look at the performances of those two midfielders last night, and fair enough, Skip may be slightly different because he's come back from a, from a longer-term injury. But, you know, we said so many times in the first half of the season, and with Basuma in mind mostly, that it was insane how much football Hoiberg and Bentenko were playing. And sure enough, you watch the, these two kids get thrown in, in in a Champions League last 16 away tie against the champions of Italy. Both look really good. And you just kind of sit up and think, well, hang on. Could they not have played a little bit more football in the first half of the season and rested Hoiberg and Bentenker for some of those matches? I mean, Hoiberg really dropped off. I mean, I think he's not really been great since the World Cup, to be honest. And I'm not at all surprised given how much running he did both at that tournament and before. And, you know, you do wonder, had that been managed slightly differently, whether maybe things would be a bit better. I just think there's been so many games this season where Spurs have been kind of solid but unable to to score for example and you just think if Richarlison had been played Richarlison had played not even all of Son's games but just a, a third of Son's minutes this season or even just come on from at half time more again because Conte it's not even I mean starts is one thing but subs is another thing Conte hates making subs if Conte had been more willing to hook Son at half time and put Richarlison on then m- maybe maybe that would have contributed a handful of points to Tottenham's season. But again, Conte not only likes to start the same 11 players week in, week out, he also never likes to make substitutions either. It's mad not making a substitution to, to, until 17 minutes when you have, you have five substitutions. And, and fair enough, like, y- you know, you want to protect the shape and you want your best players on the pitch. And I can get why, you know, if you're doing a good defensive job, say, like against Manchester City, why you might not want to rock the boat. But... That hasn't been the way of it for the most part, uh, and that, and actually even last night where you know the the team looked not incredible on paper by that front three, the bench actually was quite good. You know you had Poro, you had Richarlison, you had Dan Juma. You know it wasn't awful. There were options there, and, and you know to to wait so long, and it was the same against Leicester on Saturday. But by the Bentancur substitution, obviously he went off injured. I mean, waiting until 70, 75 minutes to make a change when your team isn't playing well every single game, it's mad. I just don't understand it. Um, now we're getting into my frustrations with Antonio Conte. It also means that if you're Daniel Levy, yeah, I know, yes, Levy out, Enoch out, I get it, I get it. Um, if you're Daniel Levy and the press conference are happening in front of you, uh, no doubt he's got a little monitor in, in his office, and it's once again, we need to buy the right players, we need to buy players, we can't go on with this shower that we've got, that Antonio does, whenever he is provoked by the press to have that soliloquy. And you look at the treatment, and Spurs went out and bought the best player in the championship last season in Jed Spence, a player who's been absolutely coveted by other teams in the form of, of, of Bissouma, and Brazil centre-forward, and none of them have got anywhere near playing for the team. So I'm buying you these players, some of them at tremendous expense in the case of Richarlison, and you're not even going to bother to give them a go. It, it, I, I, wouldn't be, I wouldn't have been buying Pedro Porro just because Antonio Conte wanted him, because he might not play him. Richarlison cost an initial £50 million, 
And he's basically only started as a backup to Kulisewski, or alternative to Kulisewski in that role, which is his worst role that makes the team worse. And he's never been trusted. He's been trusted to start twice on the left, and I think never through the middle, which is where he'd want to play. It's like, I'm, you know, I don't imagine that Richarlison's particularly happy about how things have worked out, but I, don't, I wonder how happy Daniel Levy be ha- would be with how, how his 50 million... I can help you with that. He'll be really unhappy with it. And you would be too. And, he, and it's no surprise to me to see either either actual uh, highly imaginative journalists or uh, Richarlison's agent planting stories this week that, you know, his old mate Ancelotti from their time at Everton thinks he could do a good job at Real Madrid. I'm not saying he's Real Madrid standard because I don't know. He played really well for Everton in the second half of last season. He played really well for Brazil in the World Cup. But I don't know how good a player he is because I haven't had a chance to watch him up close in a couple of games continuously for Spurs. So the other knock-on, and it's pertinent to the second leg here, of the way Antonio wants to run things is that it appears to me as well that if he doesn't get his first choice in the transfer market, he says, well, then I don't want anything. Um, because the obsession with, uh, with Alessandro Bastoni means that they haven't reinforced the team in any way, shape, or form, long days on loan, a centre-back. Um, Romero could easily have been sent off. Dyer, it turns out, got the two yellow cards three uh, over, the, over the legs. And Dyer won't play. The system's not going to change. And so I'll, 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 give, I'll leave, throw it to you, assistant manager James Moore, who is going to play centre-back in the second leg up against, uh, well, probably Giroud and Rafael Leao. Firstly, can we celebrate the fact that I got the starting eleven for the first game completely correct? I said Longley would play, and Jack said Davies would play. did say Longley would play. I, I mean, I can only imagine... it. If you're asking me what I would do, I would play Sanchez, I guess. If you're asking me what I think... Conte might do on the basis of what happened on Saturday, I would be worried that he'll play Tanganga, which I can only assume was done on Saturday with the pace of Harvey Barnes in mind. And I can only, I would kind of hazard a guess at the moment might be done for the second leg with Liao in mind. Now, I'm not sure that would necessarily be a good idea, but I do think that might be what happened. You know, um, and I'm, I'm not making out that... With, with Romero going inside. Um, yeah, that's, that's, that's the issue. What about, Long, what about Longley in the middle? Davis on the left, Romero on the right. That's what he did a few for a few games before the World Cup, I think. Not with Romero, but with Dyer actually on the right. But I think it'd be Davis, Longley, Romero. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, I'm not. It, it can't be Tanganga. I take the point about um, his pace, but all the effort seems to be doing to me is from running to the wrong position a bit quicker than he might norm- than somebody else might normally do. I have to say, on the defence, last Romero yesterday, I thought was really poor on that first goal. Losing the header, the the yellow card he got booked for. I know we did our the other day on the podcast. We came up with our you know our big clever theory about how Romero's actually rational and it's all it's all clever. When you say I thought, we, I thought when you say we, we. well, so I actually it turns out I, I picked my brains a bit and I realised it's actually a, uh, a Charlie Eccleshare theory which I've stolen and pretended was actually mine, which is doubly embarrassing. Um, <laughs> but I, um, uh, yeah, Charlie I mean, also thought Skit would basically win Ballon d'Or, so yeah. maybe he, was I, right he about could that. thought. That tackle he got booked for, could, he could have been sent off for, I think, plausibly. And I just didn't think it was a great night for him at all. No, the, 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 the failure to win the header was, you know, and when when Stellini uh, uh, parrots um, Conte's line about we have to be perfect, that's that's bread and butter header. You can't be caught under the ball there, um, not in a three, and particularly not in a three. We talked a lot about like him herring up to the halfway line to try and win challenges that he doesn't necessarily need to win. And I'm not thinking about the 
Tonali one from last night, but more sort of the, the, the Haaland one the other week. But he's also like misjudging things at close quarters as well. And, you know, in the immediate build up to that goal, he did that possibly twice where he's trying to he's tried to get into like a physical battle with a player, lost out and then been totally exposed. And I don't, I don't know. You just worry about like his judgment, whether he's, he's so quick to try and get involved in some kind of physical confrontation. Not in like a sort of sinister off the ball way necessarily, but you know, in terms of like a robust challenge. We talked possibly even last season, and this actually, funnily enough, is another Charlie Eccleshare theory. What about Emerson Royale at right-sided centre-back? I'm not suggesting necessarily drop Romero, but clearly like, we know defen- he's, he's stronger defensively than he is offensively, and he's playing well defensively at the moment. Is there any value in playing him on the right of that three? I guess the, the fact that he's, he is okay positionally defensively, the problem, I guess, would be that that... In the, in the three, the two that are wide need to be the ones who play the ball out into the next player. And his passing is True. questionable at best, isn't it? I see it on paper, but the best the best of those, the Aspilicuetas, even Gary Neville when he was playing there, are people who are pretty good players to start with um, and can use that as a base of, 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 of the position allows them to use their skills. I'm not sure their skills that necessarily uh, that Emerson has, but he played okay yesterday. I, I'd agree with you about that. Okay, Charlie was wrong. Charlie was wrong. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. This is The View from the Lane. Mauricio Pochettino put up a picture, and I don't know whether it's contemporary, of himself in a restaurant with Jesus Perez. Yeah, Perez put it on his Instagram okay. the other day, and I'm pretty sure he said it was in London. Okay, well, essentially, it's the people who ran Spurs, for instance, when they got to the Champions League final. Uh, Mauricio Pochettino, Jesus Perez, uh, Tony uh, Sistax, and technical director at the time, uh, Steve Hitchin. They were all there, so that was and academy director John McDermott on the left. Oh, there's John McDermott, you're absolutely who now, who now works for the FA. Meanwhile, Antonio Conte. Now look, Antonio Conte is in Italy and is maybe presumably being asked this question by an Italian journalist. Whatever question it was, it brought elicited this response. I don't want to talk about the future, but as a former Italian <laughs> national manager, people know how much Italy means to me. It's in my heart. I will never exclude the possible idea that I will be back here one day. Now, of course, that is absolutely innocent. Um, why wouldn't a man who is Italian, whose family live in Italy, why wouldn't that man want to one day go back to those uh, sunny uplands um, and enjoy himself in Italy? Absolutely innocent. Except, James, in the context of his blinking contract at Tottenham. I mean, I, I do agree with you. It is, I, I would say, fairly sort of innocuous. I, I wouldn't necessarily worry that that's like an indication that his head is completely gone. I'd probably be more worried about like a, his his general demeanour, body language and kind of attitude to the job over the last 10 months or so. Maybe not 10 months, six or seven months uh, since the start of the season. So that I, I'd say that hasn't really moved the dial for me. I, I have no expectation that Conte is going to be the Tottenham manager next season anyway. But personally, I just don't see you know 
that there's clearly no sign of a contract being signed. I, I don't really see anything changing that's going to suddenly give him the desire to be to be the Tottenham manager next season and to be working in London next season. And look, there are some reasons for that in his personal life. We've talked about this before. Obviously, it's been a very challenging few months for him on a personal level and his family are in Italy. So on one level, it's completely understandable that that would be the case. But it doesn't help Tottenham. And, And it does kind of feel to me like there will come a point where we hit the drift at the end of the season where, you know, once the team's out of the Champions League, out of the FA Cup, if that happens, if things don't pick up in the league and they end up kind of looking more down towards sixth and seventh than they are up to fourth or third, you might suddenly find yourself in a real kind of drift towards the end of the season, which was kind of what happened under Jose Mourinho in uh, in 2021. Yeah, like I say, those kind of comments don't don't move me at all. It's just, we, we already knew that. There's nothing there we didn't already know. And I'm surprised that people are so rattled by that because it's just unchanged. Well, on Monday, Jack, you said that you now think it's more likely than not that Conte will not sign a new contract. I think I've got that right. Or did you just quote yeah. or did it just, just, just to Charlie tell you to say that? No, that is what I think. Okay, good. Well, and I agree with you. Um, and so all of this is it really is just more drip, drip evidence of that. So why, why, is, why is Daniel Levy tolerating this? Because it clearly does, if this is the case, and people are somewhere between thinking very strongly and knowing that he's not going to carry on. Why? And it's also, it's clear to me that it's to the detriment of the team, the club, and the fans. Why is it being allowed to carry on? Do I take it from your question that you think that Daniel Levy should sack him? Um, sack is a hard because that's what it sounds like you're saying. Yeah, sack is a hard word, but yes, yeah. I think I think you could, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. If I was the the overall manager, I would say, well, this is not sustainable. We need to get ready for the rest. Of the- We've still got half a season to go, and we're drifting along. To use James's word, let's get let's get started both with this season and the preparation for next. Who is going to manage this team? Let's get them in if it's possible. Yeah, I don't think that's how. I don't think. That's yet how Daniel Levy would see the situation. I think that even though it's obviously far from ideal to have a manager in the final final few months of his contract, like you would always want a manager there for the longer term. I think that I'm not sh- I'm not convinced that sacking Conte would help anything at all, uh, unless they had a very good replacement who could come straight in. I know that in the back of everyone's mind is the fact that in April 2021, they sat Mourinho to replace him with Ryan Mason for the last six league games of the season and the League Cup final. Uh, I don't think Tottenham are at that stage yet. They're still in with a shout for fourth. They're still into two cup competitions for now. So no, I don't think I don't think it will make sense for Daniel Levy to sack Conte uh, anytime soon. Although, you know, come back to me if they if they lose the second leg, lose to Sheffield United and then lose the next three Premier League games. But but why wait? What, I, I, sorry, and I know, I know your this isn't your opinion, and you're picking across what you think Daniel Levy would be thinking. But why would you wait? Like because you might not have a really good new manager to come in, and you also might not think. I mean, if you can sack him and then replace him with a really good manager who would imp- who would lift the whole situation and get everyone happy again, then that might be one scenario. But if you don't have a replacement and you're sacking, you know, one of the best managers in the world for for nobody really, then it's doesn't I'm not sure it necessarily makes sense to I'm not sure it necessarily makes it likelier 
that Spurs come fourth, which is really probably going to be the, the guiding principle by which these decisions are taken. And also I think that Daniel Levy wants it to work out. You know, Daniel Levy has a huge amount of personal capital invested in this appointment. This is his kind of masterstroke. He was... He, even though elements of Conte being Tottenham manager are hugely frustrating to a lot of people inside the building at Tottenham, you know, the, namely uh, the the way that he criticises the club in public, the way that he... So uh, this is something that Alistair Gold wrote about the other day, which I've also heard to be the case, which is about uh, training times, moving all the time, but really annoying to people inside the building, I think. I still think, despite all of that... Daniel Levy wants Conte to work out because you know, he wants it to be seen to be a success. And even if Conte leaves at the end of the season with, let's say, fourth place, or even better than that, fourth place in a cup, then, um, you know, everyone can just about save enough face, I think. So I do think that... He finishes in fourth place and wins the FA Cup and leaps. That That is more than saving face. It's like, that's yeah, like it, Tottenham's, right. be- Tottenham's best season for 30 years. I mean, that, yeah. that, that, okay, that would be, enough. you know... He would go with everyone's good wishes. I mean, people would want him to stay. But he'd go with everyone's good wishes if that was what he chose to do after that. My sense, my feeling, my instinct is that in six weeks, two months' time, he'll still be the Tottenham manager, but we will be saying, actually, maybe they should have made the decision, probably even before now, probably even before mid-February. You know, I think I said before, this was a thing they needed to sort out during the World Cup break. I think they needed a hard, they needed a hard deadline for the decision, I think. I know it's a very difficult thing to do when you've done very well last season. You're not doing terribly this season at that point or now, really. But I just don't think a club the size of Tottenham, and I say that to me not at the very, very top, but near the top and, you know, with ambitions of being one of the top clubs. I don't think a club in that position can afford to let another season just like drift away without any kind of plan for next season. And And, and that is the bigger thing, I think. It's not bringing someone in now with a view to, you know, doing what Roberto Di Matteo did at Chelsea in 2012 and suddenly winning the Champions League out of nowhere when, you, when they'd previously looked rubbish. More for like get, getting their feet under the table and being ready to rebuild next season. And, and you're right in what you say, Jackie, if a right manager isn't available, obviously they can't do that and they shouldn't try and do that. They shouldn't try and do that with with a Nuno or whatever, with the wrong manager. That's completely, you're completely correct in, in saying that. But there is a possibility of doing that. You know, if, if we end up, I, I, I will be annoyed if we end up in July, we're recording our first podcast of next season, and Maurizio Pochettino is the manager of Tottenham. I'd actually kind of be quite annoyed. Like if the season peters out in the way that we think it might, and Maurizio Pochettino ends up being the manager of Tottenham next season, then they're going to have missed a trick, in my opinion. Well, because they had, yeah. because they didn't yeah. get him in because sooner. Because he sat there, and he sat there in that bloody restaurant. He's around the, the corner now. But Wait, sorry, James, can I just go. pull you up on something? Do you actually? It sounds like from what you're saying that you think that as soon as they got an indication that he wasn't going to sign a new contract, he should in November he should have been straight out the door. Well, no, I think they needed to have serious conversations about the way that was going to look for the rest of the season. And, and, and do you think the fans would have accepted sacking Conte mid-season? I think Levy's. I think Levy's well, worried no, 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 about no, no, the no, fans' no, no, no. reaction if he sacks Conte. It's, it, I, I think it's the lack. The lack of clarity is the problem. Like if even if Ed come out and said at the end of this, he's staying for the end of the season and he's leaving, I think that is better than what we have now. I don't think that's ideal, but I think it's better. Levy is worried, Jack, about how it would look to the fans, but he's not worried about the team. He's worried about how it would look with him having made another poor decision about about the manager. And to me, and you know, I'm overly emotionally committed uh, to Spurs. It's humiliating. It's humiliating to have to be to be led. He's the t- he is the leader of the club. The club's manager is the leader. 
Daniel Levy, Levy out, Enoch out, etc. I get it. Daniel Levy is not the leader day to day. It is the manager's job to lead what you see out on the pitch as the final finished product. And it reminds me, and it's always dangerous comparing football to relationships, but it's like he's a really badly behaving partner. And Daniel Levy, once every fortnight, goes to the garage and buys him a few flowers in the hope that it's going to change the situation. It's not changing the situation. The situation gets worse as each week goes by. And the obvious parting of the ways and the divorce courts become ever more focused on the horizon. But you have to take control of those situations. The drift that you talk about uh, in playing uh, performances, James, is already happening at an administrative level. The, 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 the chairman is tied to a piece of furniture that doesn't want to be in the house anymore. I don't get it. I, I think it's weak by Daniel Levy to let this drift on. Absolute sign of Do weakness. Do you think they should just put out a statement now saying... I don't know, following conversations, the club have, have uh, decided that they and Antonio Conte will part ways at the completion of his contract at the end of the season. Do you think that? Do you think that's what they should do? And do you think that would help? That would be my second option. My first option would be to shake his hand, thank him for his efforts, and send him off towards the airport and Milan. or wherever. Or wherever. But who would manage the team for West Ham? I suppose Ryan Mason would at this stage. Um, because I tell you what, there's you like used the phrase, you the used the phrase Spurs are capable of really good football under Conte. And I've just written it there. Is it likely? They're capable of playing good football. Is it likely? And the answer is no, it's not. Because Manchester City is a blip. They've played good football under Conte, what, like two or three times this season? That is that is the reality of it. That's true. It has That's been true. so, so, so infrequent this season. And the fact they're capable of it and haven't done it, actually, it's quite a big, it's quite a big, it's a damning indictment on Conte, that. Well, all that was provoked by one meaningless quote um, and a photograph of some blokes having uh, having their dinner. <laughs> What was it I said? I, d- I didn't see why people got so rattled. No, about well, that. yeah, well, uh, you <laughs> yeah, should okay. talk to Mrs. Kelly about how rattled I can get about things. Just as a bit of fun, because well, we're going to look at how it's one or two, the, the, the injuries that Spurs suddenly sustained have shone a light on the highly expensive talent they've got um, on loan all over the world. I had too much time in my hands. I put together an 11 that Spurs could put out at the San Siro of players who are on loan from Spurs or on loan to Spurs. It was my outfield loan 11. I played 4-4-2 um, with a back four of Jed Spence, Joe Rodon, Langley and Udoji. Um, my God, Pedro Porro can't even get in the team and he's on loan, isn't he? <laughs> I played a midfield four of Ndombele, Winks, Lacelso, and Reguillon. Um, and up front, Dan Juma and Kulusevski were my choices. I didn't have anybody tall enough, big enough, or tr- practised in goal to, to play. So, James, I've picked you on the grounds that you're tall enough and big enough. So you're in goal with that 11. Jack, I'm, I'm also thinking it is another example. Forget about the set. Well, you, know, you can not forget. You talk about Ndombele, uh, next Spurs player off the block, by the way, to win a trophy, um, having left the club. I think can't think of it. Maybe... Oh, no, the Celtic players will win. Um, the Carter Vickers and uh, Joe Hart will win at least one trophy before then. The Hart dog. Yeah, <laughs> the Hart dog. They will win a trophy very, very soon to add to the 100-plus that we all know about. Again, it's a slight sign of, of, of chaotic planning, I think, when you've got players away on loan who probably would have made the, the squad, if not the starting eleven last night. Yeah, I mean, I think it is a sign of sort of bad and messy recruitment over the last few years, which is also kind of inseparable from bad managerial appointments and 
lack of sort of joined up strategy or rather a new strategy every six months or so when it comes to when it comes to signings i think there's also another another factor here which is just sort of pre the financial dominance in the premier league means that it's it's very very hard for the premier league to sell players uh particularly given that lots of those players were signed pre-covid where teams are throwing money around you know teams are throwing money <laughs> english teams are throwing money around again now and nobody in Europe can compete. Like we saw that last night. Like how many of those Milan players would have got in this in the Tottenham team? Hardly any, I don't think. Like English teams are just so much richer than than almost every team abroad, with the exception of uh, Real Madrid, PSG, and maybe Barcelona, which of course explains Super League and, and all the rest of, course, of it. Yeah. Um, so it's not just because Tottenham signed lots of lots of players who didn't fit. Although obviously that is a really big part of the uh, of the equation too. But the thing is, if, if Conte goes and they get a very different sort of manager, then there's going to be big question marks about another half a dozen of these players because these players were signed by Paratici to play for Conte, and then all of a sudden a new manager comes in and they think, oh, you know, I'm not sure what I think about him or him or him. So it's uh, the new manager might the new manager might fancy a bit of Ndombele in midfield, Jack. So I do yeah. It's, I mean, especially if you brought back the manager who signed him in the first place. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if if you can drag him away from that restaurant, it's it's completely plausible to me that that would happen. What what Jack has just said is going to be the quote that gets picked up by one of those aggregator sites. Athletic journalist believes Ndombele has Tottenham future. That That is going to be the story. I look forward to reading it. Just on a serious note then with some of these um, lone players, let's just catch up with what they've been doing. I mean, Harry Winks, bless him, after sort of Oliver Skip type uh, injury on the side, time-wise on the, on, on the sidelines, um, Winks has now played, I think, five successive games for Sampdoria and according to the uh, the reports I'm getting back, he's been their best player now. That is not hard in what is turning out to be a real struggle for Sampdoria. Sometimes hard, hard, hard to recall that as well as being an England squad reg- regular, if not necessarily a team regular, Harry Winks is only 27. He still has, I think, good career in front of him. Jed Spence has played twice for Wren, who are also losing football matches. Um, some people will say, well, they've got two, two out of four of their defenders are Spurs players. Um, but he's looked very good going forward and um, people, they've, they've already taken to him there. And the other one, you know, we really could do within the squad now, in my opinion, um, is Destiny Adoji, who starts every game when he's fit uh, for Udinese. And, you know, he's not rattling up Michel Cancelo-type figures, um, but he has got goals. He got a very quick goal, as I mentioned on Monday uh, at the weekend. And he's got his assists and, you know, people... And maybe it's great that he's learning his trade in a really, really good league. Would you would you like to play in goal for Spurs, James? In a, even in a testimonial? Yeah, maybe in a testimonial, wouldn't I? Wouldn't worry too much. I did. I did once play in goal for my scouts mm-hmm. team in a seven-a-side tournament when I reckon I would have been like eleven. Right. It was like ninety-nine. How tall were you when you were eleven? Yeah, good question. I know I was six foot two when I was fifteen. Well, yeah. I must have been like five, I don't know, five, five, nine. You're an unfair disadvantage in, in restricted sized games, aren't you? Because the goals are tiny, you could just lie down and you'd have covered half the goal. Yeah, admit, that is true, but as we've seen with Fraser Forster, being big doesn't necessarily Well, that's why I'm, can, uh, stop, that's why I'm suggesting you shots. lie down, so at least you'll say to the ones that are on the ground. <laughs> That's true. Maybe is that oh, what you're absolutely. He, he, no, no, he, he didn't. He, he was unlucky with the goal last night. Let's you know again. Let's we were quick to criticise. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's true. He didn't do anything wrong, that. and he was so really unlucky was with, the, with the with the goal uh, last night. He he'd done all he could possibly do. Of course, you have a, a game 
where we struggle to know whether the result is good, bad, or indifferent. No such doubts, I think, is necessary for the game that's coming up at the weekend. Because West Ham fans have turned this into a massive derby, um, and because Spurs need the points, if they're going to maintain that they were lucky last weekend with their, their defeat was matched by average results for the teams around them, uh, Jack. But um, I'm not saying West Ham is a must-win game, but it's a game that I, I, the fans will really, really, really want Spurs to win. I don't think it's far from a must-win. I think if they drew, it would be a pretty bad vibe. To be honest, I think they need after after last after well like after losing two games in a row, uh, they could definitely do with with turning it around. And also, I think like like we said last week, they can catch Newcastle. They can totally catch Newcastle, but they do need to start. They do need to start winning more league games, basically. So yeah, I think it's it's not far off calling it a must win. Must win for you, James. Yeah, it does feel like another. It's quite a good opportunity to kind of swing that momentum again in the kind of crazy over the top way that seems to happen with Spurs at the moment. Uh, in an emotional sense, a good win against West Ham. I, I kind of think would actually sort of change how I feel about yesterday's game as well. Like, it, like a good performance against West Ham does kind of tee you up for the second leg, and I know it's ages away yet, but it would give you so much more belief that that they can turn that around, and there's still you know going to be something to be played for for in the last few months of the season. So yeah, it. Must win is probably not quite right. It'd be pretty bad if it's well, didn't. and of course it does. It doesn't need saying that West Ham need the points desperately because I suspect that with Nottingham Forest getting their act together, one of a very, very a group of very, very big clubs is going to get relegated this year. Possibly Everton, possibly West Ham, possibly Leeds. I mean, it, it they've got a lot to play for in that game. And we'll see how they get on. But in the printed version of the Athletic, uh, James, what have the what have the lads been uh, doing for us? Yeah, well, I mean, off the back of the game uh, in Milan last night, Tim has written a piece, perhaps unsurprisingly, praising Ollie Skip and Papsar uh, and their performance, and kind of comparing it to some of the other breakthrough performances by young Spurs players, particularly in Europe. So, yeah, on a night when some of the more experienced players, the big money signings, as we mentioned, didn't do it. Now, those two, and, and Fraser Forster as well, as we just mentioned, did. Yeah. Listen, thank you, Jack. Thank you, James. And thank you all for listening. I want to reiterate what a fantastic bargain The Athletic itself is. If you're not already a subscriber, you can sign up now and read all of the stuff, some of which James has mentioned there, uh, about Spurs, as well as everything else on the site. I mean, there's literally... It's infinite. It's literally infinite. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod and sign up right now for $1.99 a month. That's for the first 12 months. It's a total bargain. Uh, that's theathletic.com forward slash Spurs pod. We'll be back on Monday, where hopefully we'll be celebrating a win in a London derby. Cheers for now. The Athletic.